This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Our guest today is Mark Dowdle, Superintendent of Gates of the Arctic National Park. Mark has been with the National Park Service for 24 years and started his new assignment at Gates of the Arctic in April of this year. He previously served as the Deputy Superintendent of Cape Hatteras National Seashore in North Carolina and has served as a park ranger supervisor and manager in a number of parks, including the National Parks of Boston, Yosemite National Park, Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, and Yellowstone National Park. So welcome, Mark Dottle, up there in the gates of the Arctic. It's great to be talking with you. Hi, Jay. Thank you for having me on your show today. Great pleasure. Great. Well, uh, how do you like it up there north of the, in the North Country? It's amazing, Jay. I arrived in Fairbanks in April. Fairbanks is part So uh, the park is uh, located north of the Arctic Circle. Are you are you north of the Arctic Circle where you are? Uh, currently, no, because I'm in Fairbanks. So, yeah, I think uh, a lot of people think about Alaska. They think about the very far, the north, into the Arctic, uh, in the far north of Alaska, the park is entirely above the Arctic Alaska. So is the is it the only park in the U.S. national system that has no road access? No, I, I think there are other parts without road access. There are definitely other parts in Alaska, uh-huh. such as the National Reserve, Conchar Rivers National Reserve, Lake Clark National Park, for example. But I can think of a few parks in the lower 48 that do not grow that now, mostly islands. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Parks in Florida, Shell Island National Park in California, Isle Royal National Park in Michigan. The Dal- the, is it the Dalton or Dobson Highway that's on the east side of the park? It is. It's called the Dalton Highway. It stretches from uh, the north of Fairbanks all the way up to the far north uh, end of um, Alaska, Pluto Bay, and uh, mostly uh, dirt road, and it, um, it doesn't go through the park, but it does uh, run just the park boundary. So I think you can hike in to the park from the Dalton Highway? You can. Uh, you know, the park is very large, so starting from the Dalton Highway, you can definitely access the park that way. 
Yeah, so how many square miles is the park? Uh, the park is about 13,000 square miles, and um, you know, that's over 8 million acres. Uh, uh-huh. The land puts that in a little bit of context, that's over four times the Oh, wow. Wow. So, um... Uh, how do you get? How do you get up there? Since there, uh, do, do you go up the Dalton Highway and somehow get in, uh, or do you fly in, or how do you get there? Yeah, it, it depends uh, on the uh, ultimate location. Uh, a, a lot of the park is accessed by the air. Um, like, so you, um, a visitor, for example, could fly commercially from Fairbanks up to. Um, some of the uh, nearby villages that, that are uh, very close to the park, like Bettles and Colfoot uh, and Antubic Pass. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could land in the park either um, uh, in an airplane with wheels, uh, but it would probably be on a, a, a pebbly beach, or uh, an airplane with floats that could land mm-hmm. on a, a river or a lake. So, uh how far is it uh, as the crow flies are flying up there? Well, it depends on, on what your destination is. Right. But it's probably going to be at least several hundred miles to, to almost anywhere. And what's the difference between a park and a preserve? Yeah, there, there, is, uh, there is a difference, um, but they are really... Um, both large natural areas protected. Uh, really, Jay, the biggest difference is in some uh, form of it, the lands are managed. And with a preserve, the, the biggest difference is that um, general hunting is allowed in a preserve, and only subsistence hunting nice. would be allowed in the national park area. And for gates of the Arctic, National Park and Reserve, only about 10% of the overall lands are preserved lands. So indigenous people have hunting rights in, uh, in, in both preserve and park, or just one of them? I'm sorry, do they have what? Indigenous people, uh, they have hunting rights in both park and preserve, or just one of them? Oh yes, both. Uh, in, inside the National Park, uh, if, if they live and reside locally, they, um, they can hunt, subsistence hunt in, in the park, hunting for uh, what we call a subsistence lifestyle to uh, gather food, to, to hunt wildlife, um, gather berries, uh, those, those types of things, uh, to live off the land, so to speak. And uh, they can do that both in the, in the park and in the preserve. So there, uh, uh, there are wilderness areas designated in that area, uh, some, one of which is right within the park. What does wilderness designation do for it? Yes, so there are uh, over 7 million acres of land within Gates of the Arctic National Park that are what we call designated wilderness. And this designated by an act of Congress 
So it is a congressionally designated wilderness area, and it has uh, additional or special protections associated with that. It's really one of the highest levels of protection that, that any land area can have mm. inside the United States. And then there is additional wilderness adjacent to Gates of the Arctic, including No Attack National Preserve, which has about 0.8 million acres of wilderness, and Cobalt Valley National Park, which has 190,000 acres of designated wilderness. And No Attack Valley has a has another superintendent who takes who's responsible for it. Yes, sir. Uh, no Attack National Preserve has its own uh, superintendent that is uh, located in uh, out of um, Kotzebue, Alaska, oh. to, to our west. So, um, how often is it necessary for you to go on up into the park, and why would you? Why do you go up there? Yes, uh, it depends. Uh, there is a need to become familiar with the places and the resources in the park. And I'm new here, so this will come in time, I know, but I'm very fortunate. Uh, there are some great people with many years of experience and knowledge to, to learn from. One important reason to visit the park is to interact with park staff that work at remote workstations like Bettles and Colfoot and Anatovic Pass, and it's important to hear from them, to know that they have the resources they need to do their job, and to hear firsthand about how the park is running. And then another important reason, Jay, is to visit the park, um, or areas adjacent to the park, is to visit local villages, tribes, and communities. And I can't express enough how important those relationships are and the importance of hearing from local people about potential park management decisions that may impact their lives and traditions. And there's a tremendous um, amount of traditional ecological knowledge, we call it, um, mm -hmm. in the local communities that have accumulated over many centuries. Uh, and this needs to be factored in the management decisions. And how many how many staff people do you have located in Beatles? Uh, is it Beatles and and the other the other stations? Yeah, Beatles, for example, um, we uh, have uh, two interpret park rangers and two interpretation student conservation association interns. And we have an agreement with, we call it SCA, or Student Conservation Association, um, and, and uh, we're able to host several interns every year. And then also in Bettles, we have one facilities as well. Mm -hmm. So there are no, no roads and few trails. Uh, uh, how do people who visit the park get around? Yes, uh, and Jay, there are actually no trails, no roads or no trails. Oh, really? Uh, as far as access, it depends really on the time of year. In the summer, visitors are either backpacking or wayfinding you know, on, on foot or possibly floating one of the many rivers. And then in mm -hmm. the winter, people are moving through the park by dog sled or cross-country skis. Mm. So can, can people access the park uh, on the rivers uh, coming upstream? You can. You can. Uh, it, it depends on, uh, you know, if you're going upstream, how 
navigable the, the waterway is and or, you know what the, the level of current and that type of thing is and the farther you get up the, the stream or the river um, the, the more challenging that can be to, to go up river in a, in a watercraft because it gets shallower is that why yes it gets more shallow and the, the current can be stronger uh-huh. so um and so people can fly into these various villages, and and then can they can they use snowmobiles or ORVs to to move around in the park? So in the winter months, when there's adequate snow cover, snow machines are allowed. Um, but when the the snow starts to melt off, then you know that's just not a viable form of of transportation. Uh, off-road vehicles are, are not allowed. Oh. Uh, you know, we, we don't have any uh, we, we don't have any roads, and there would essentially be there there would really be no way to access oh, I see. even uh, or, or to get across streams or valleys or across mountains. So, t- tell us about the history of the park. Uh, what's its the geology? How were those uh, How were those mountains formed and uh, was it part of the Bering Land Bridge? What's the history? Yeah. Jay, that's a really big question, and I think I can begin to give that <laughs> context. I, I think I would start um, with human history, and humans have lived in the Brooks Range for more than 13,000 years, and there are thousands and thousands of archaeological sites in Gates of the Arctic uh, that document this history. and people's strong connections to the land and today Athabaskan and Inupit descendants and various non-native Alaskan peoples call this area home. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and traditionally populations were small and mobile and they moved throughout the year among series of camps to harvest seasonally available foods and it was really not until the last century that people settled in permanent year-round villages and today there are 11 what we call resident zone communities directly associated with the park. And many of these people continue uh, those hunting traditions to conduct subsistence activities within, around the park and preserve. And then also talking about human history, more more recent uh, European, the first European um, visitors uh, came to Central Brooks Range in the 1880s. These were military explorers assigned to map mm-hmm. this uncharted territory, and they struggled up the rivers and over the mountain passes. And followed, following them were prospectors uh, searching for signs of gold, and they survived the, the long winters and rough mining camps. And then government scientists came to examine and record the natural and cultural history of really this previously undocumented place. And then, of course, more recently, uh, the recreational adventurers that are seeking, you know, wild places, um, and, and certainly Gates of the Arctic um, provides that. And then, Jay, when we talk about geology, uh, the, um, you know, the whole park can preserve, protect a, a landscape uh, that encompasses the, the Brooks Range, as, as I mentioned, and uh, and this is completely north of the Arctic Circle, and like much of Alaska, these mountains were formed when large sections of the 
Earth's crust called terrains were transported here by the process of plate tectonics and hiding within the layers of these terrains there can be fossils of once living organisms from throughout history. Some of these are as old as 400 million years. Mm. It's really amazing. Uh, and then this tectonic activity, many of the peaks of the park, like the Ergach peaks, started out as magma below the Earth's surface and then slowly cooled over time to become solid rock called granite. And this granite was uplifted by the collision of the plates and the rocks above it were eroded away by mm. the forces of the Earth's surface. And one of these big forces was uh, glaciers. And uh, much of the Brooks Range during the last ice age were covered by glaciers, unlike a lot of interior Alaska, which was actually ice-free during that time. And these glaciers out the, the sharp peaks, ridges, and valleys, and lakes, and left behind you know, trace deposits of you know this, this glacial history mm-hmm. and, and retreat, and really shaped the landscape that we see today. So there was magma that was formed beneath the surface, but there was none that broke through as volcanoes. Is that right? Yeah, not necessarily called volcanoes uh, uh, um, so much, but you know this this did. Um, yeah, I don't know to what degree, but I, I think there was some uh, volcanism, but not as as much as in uh, some some other places like the Cascade Range and the. Uh, in the western mm-hmm. um, United States. And, and then, Jay, you did mention the Barren Bridge. If I could touch on that, um, because this is a really interesting story and, and part of the history of, of Alaska, and some call this the lost co- continent of Beringia. It's a really not-so-mythical land that disappeared beneath the Bering and Chukchi Sea during the last ice age. And there were two big ice sheets that covered much of Canada and the northern United States, and these mm-hmm. ice sheets trapped a lot of water, so much so that the level of the seas dropped and exposed a pathway between Siberia and Alaska, and people moved across this new land, and mm-hmm. that's where the first, first Alaskans came from. So what's the high point, in the, I assume, in the Brooks Range? Yeah, the highest point in the park is uh, Ikapak, uh, Mount Igapak, and it's 8,510 feet high. And then not too far from that, uh, also um, in the southwest area, the lowest point in the park, which is about 289 feet above sea level uh, along the Cook River. Uh-huh. So, uh, Agiac Lake is a major, is that a major feature in the park? Where's it located? Yeah, it's you know, it's a relative low lake. Uh, it's just south of the Continental Divide in the kind of the more northern end of the park. And uh, But I think what's significant about the lake is that it's the headwaters for um, Igiak Creek and the John River, which is a designated wild and scenic river. And Jay, inside Gates of the Arctic National Park and Preserve, we have six wild and scenic rivers um, designated. Wow. So uh, the Brook, Brooks Range makes up the bulk of the park. Uh, uh, what's it, what's it, the Brooks Range like? Uh, what's the landscape look like? Yes, you're you're correct. It, it uh, 
um, comprises uh, a lot of art. We call this the Central Brooks Range, and it stretches east-west across across the park. And the south side of the Brooks Range is within um, what we call the boreal forest, or the northern forest. It's a mosaic of diverse plant communities. It, it has swaths of spruce trees and aspen and birch, and it's all braided together with shrub thickets and meadows and boggy muskegs and then at the higher elevations you have uh, those landscapes of bedrock and scree and snow fields and glaciers and uh, mentioned the Aragach peaks this makes up you know the, the tallest the high end of the park the most rugged mountains uh, along the south boundary of the park and then Jay north of the continental divide you'll find you know, harsh weather and it's there's a lot of um, permafrost near the surface, and that prevents a, a lot of uh, growth of forest. So here the land uh, gives way to sprawling uh, tundra landscape, and this is dominated by low shrub, grassy tussocks. So down here in the, in the lower 48, the Continental Divide separates uh, Pacific drainage from Atlantic drainage. Uh, what is it divided? What does it separate up there? Yeah, well, it's uh, a similar concept. So you have waters flowing to um, to the west out towards the um, uh, the Chukchi Sea, and then you also have waters flowing to the south down towards the Yukon River. Oh. Okay. So does any any flow north to the to the Arctic? The Arctic Ocean? Uh, they do flow north. Uh, I don't know if they all the way if they if those waters exit to to the far north or if they kind of make their way more westerly. I, I'm not sure, Jay. Just north of the park uh, is called the North Slope, and then there's also I guess just east of that the National Petroleum Preserve. Uh, what? Uh, that that uh, Dalton Highway runs up to the National P Petroleum Reserve, right? It does. It, it goes up to Prudhoe Bay, and you are correct, the, the National uh, Petroleum Reserve and uh, the area we call the North Slope is to the north, the north of Gates of the Arctic National Park and Preserve. And and what, uh, what are the unique characteristics of the National Petroleum Res Preserve? Yeah, I'm with that area okay. Okay. I haven't visited there yet um, certainly there have been large uh, reserves of petroleum found there you know under the surface of the land but as I was describing the, the areas north of the continental divide is, is more of an open tundra landscape mm -hmm. uh, has lots of um, uh, uh, small uh, waterways and, and just uh, a lower uh, a lower vegetation in general. What agency of government uh, regulates the national, or is responsible for the National Petroleum Preserve? Yeah, I, I'm not sure, Jay. I, I, there are a number of different agencies uh, um, and state lands that surround the park. Um, uh, the, the Bureau of Land Management manages a lot of those lands. And then there are also a number of um, wildlife refuges in Alaska managed by the U.S. Fish and Life Service. And then there are also native 
lands, native corporation lands, and state of Alaska lands as well. What are the what are the seasonal differences that take place up in that country, uh, and and how long do they run? Yeah, well, Jay, there are definite seasons in the park, and spring and fall tend to be short. Uh, I mean, it begins in May generally, and this includes uh, fall, as we call it, and that's you know the melting of snow and the the melting of ice uh, along the rivers and lakes and. And then we'll green up, which are the the, uh, the new green growth um, coming out on trees and shrubs. And then fall uh, begins as early as mid-August, and you know this is uh, we have just amazing fall colors during this time of year. And then of course between spring and and fall is the long uh, days of summer where we have over 24 hours or have 24 hours of daylight uh, for, for pretty much May through July. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the winters are long with, you know, dark days and um, or, you know, a lot of darkness uh, during the day. And um, that generally, um, yeah, there's not much or, or very light between November and January. So it's, it's a land of extremes throughout the year. So are there any, are there any trees in the park? Oh, oh yes. Uh, there are spruce trees, and birch, and these are all braided together with um, willow shrub thickets throughout. And what are, what other kinds of flora dominate in the park? Yeah, Jay, there are about 600 species of your plants in case of the Arctic, and some examples would be um, hogsbeard, cotton grass, Siberian aster, mountain harebell, the, uh, over 600 species, so it's it's quite diverse. You, you think about the, the far north and you don't realize how much uh, diversity there is for for wildlife and and for plants mm. and there are some there are mountain peaks uh, in the in the park in the Endicott Mountains and Schwatka Mountains is that right yes yeah I, I don't think we really know how many mountains there are it's such a vast wilderness and only a few are named or, or well known um, and uh, Jay, when we talk about mountains, I, I, maybe this is a good time to mention where the, the park's name came from. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people are familiar with wilderness advocate Bob Marshall, and he would go up to the park in the, the late 20s and the 1930s, and he would travel the North Fork of the Cut River country, and uh, he, he saw two peaks, one's called Frigid Crags, and the other is Boreal Mountain, and he described this as the gates from Alaska's Central Brooks Range into the far North Arctic. So that, that's where the the, uh, the name Gates of the Arctic comes from. Do uh, do mountain climbers need permits uh, to uh, conduct expeditions there? Yeah, per- permits are not required generally to access the park. It may depend on what they're doing, if, if they were... Um, you know, depending on how they were accessing the park or what specific specific activity they were doing, the permit could potentially be required. But generally, uh, for recreational access, uh, permits are not required.
Uh-huh. And but but climbers I assume would would need climbing equipment to uh scale those peaks? It depends. Uh yeah, I mentioned the air gas peaks earlier. They're they're you know much steeper. Um I would imagine that uh technical climbing gear would be needed to mm-hmm really climb on those but you know there are other mountains that you could walk on or or, or up and over uh that are more rapid and not quite as uh steep mm-hmm. mark uh we have exhausted our time and i've got a lot of questions still to ask so uh if we could do another session i would i would certainly like to do that would that work for you Jay, I would love to join you again another time. Uh, it's been my pleasure today, and yes, uh, let's let's do this again. Okay, terrific. Thank you very much. Our guest today has been Mark Dowdle, superintendent of the Gates of the Arctic National Park up in Alaska. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, Go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.